Thank you, Pater Bernard, for this introduction. And thank you for inviting me to speak in this circle of outstanding specialists. My contribution will be less specific, probably not too bad because you might be tired in this evening. And before I begin, I would like to ask you to be patient with my poor English. In a famous essay from 1960, Hans Urs von Balthasar put the question why the great theologians of the Middle Ages and patristics are saints, while the saints of modern times are hardly considered theologians in the sense of scientific or systematic theology, but at most spiritual authors. Is spirituality or spiritual life of any relevance for dogmatics or exegesis? And vice versa, are these disciplines of any relevance for spiritual life? Is theological knowledge an aid to contemplation and mystical experience, or perhaps the contrary? Mysticism understood as a higher knowledge without dogma and contemplation better without theology? Can mystical wisdom substitute theological science? Or do mystics have need of theologians, of solid theology? Teresa de Avila has been convinced of this, especially referring to the advanced steps of mystical experience. David de Augusta, Bonaventura's Franciscan contemporary, also mentioned this aspect, as does a well-known spiritual director of the 20th century, the Carmelite Père Marie Eugène Grialou. We know not only from the late Middle Ages, but also from modern times, both. A certain hostility, or at least skepticism, towards the intellect in some spiritual movements. And we know the opposite. Theological positions that expel everything that does not fit into their own concept of reason, into the realm of irrationality. So, a bundle of questions. As we saw yesterday and today in the afternoon, the theologians of the Middle Ages took mysticism and mystical theology seriously. So, we can hope to find rich inspiration from them when looking for a renewal of mystical theology. This interest of the great scholastic theologians in mystical theology apparently depends from their concept of theology as such. And Bonaventure emphasizes the intimate connection of theological knowledge with mystical knowledge of the Donum Sapientiae and Donum intellectus, mystical 
and theological wisdom. First point. Scientia secundum pietatem, a very special science. The scholasticism of the High Middle Ages is the epoch in which theology had to prove itself as a science in the canon of academic disciplines, in accordance with Aristotle's criteria of science, knowing the principles from which conclusions can be drawn and to show by reasoning why something is as it is and not otherwise in a rational and systematic synthesis. At the same time, the scholars were well aware of the special character of theology as sacra doctrina or scientia secundum pietatem. This name, especially dear to the Franciscan theologians of the 13th century, Alexander de Hales, Bonaventura, but also found in Albert the Great, has its origin in two letters of St. Paul, First to Timotheus, quae secundum pietatem est doctrina, and Titus, agnitionem veritatis quae secundum pietatem est. The English translation is rather pale, uh, religious teaching or recognition of relig religious truth. Augustine, in De Trinitate 14, and in his Inheridion, explained piety as the true divine service, adoration that consists in faith, hope, and charity. Science, or doctrine, according with piety, is knowledge rooted in faith, hope, and charity. This knowledge will strengthen these virtues, which are the base for the union of the human person with the Almighty God and the beginning of the eternal life, the finis of revelation. Even if the individual authors of the Middle Ages certainly had different emphasis, e.g. Bonaventura's fundamental theological reflections differ from those of Thomas Aquinas in certain aspects, just as Hugo of St. Victor's conception differed from that of Anselm of Canterbury, they were convinced that this science has a special object, or better, subjectum, materia, and a not merely theoretical goal, finis. And from this, certain demands arise for both the scientific study and the teaching approach you know, the specific term, formale quo. If the subject matter of this science is God himself and his revelation, it obviously cannot be grasped, dealt with, or treated in the same way as an object of this world. At your handout, you find a text from origin is in the late Middle Ages, of Nicolaus of Clemence. The study of this most noble science must be undertaken with great sincerity, for it surpasses 
the other sciences as much as the creator surpasses the creatures, heaven surpasses earth, the eternal and changeless surpasses the transient and the perishable. Avaricious and ambitious men are not allowed to approach it. The servant of their intentions. If the theologian is not a friend of God, God will not reveal his secrets to him. If he does not stand out by the light of virtue, he will not easily be able to edify others to virtue. The following words of Nicolaus describe more wrong intentions and more vices. And I start again with, an quotation, with a quotation. Not to study in order to be called master and to have precedence over others, for that is arrogance, and nor in order to pursue one's own speculative thoughts in leisure, for that would be that sluggishness of spirit for which the lazy servant who buried his talent is rebuked in the gospel. No, one must enter the study of theology with this intention to serve God faithfully with the teaching talent one has from God and to win eternal salvation for oneself and to many others possible to it. This text, a letter written around 1420, responds to a young cleric's question if he should pursue a doctorate in theology. The prerequisites here are not for studying mystical theology, as we heard yesterday when Frater Bernard explained to us the ascetic program of Albertus Magnus, but theology as such. One could assume in the humorous and biting remarks a criticism of the real existing theologians at Nicolas' time. Anyway, ideal and reality are not always congruent. As one can conclude from many complaints and disputes of the late Middle Ages about the usefulness or uselessness of academic theology. The path to the university had undoubtedly brought greater freedom for theology. Reflection and teaching were no longer constrained by immediate practical relevance. Interdisciplinary exchange led to new creativity. But what will become of a theology speaking about God that is alienated from its native soil, spiritual practice and pastoral care? Concerned observers noted the gap between the topics of academic disputations and the knowledge of the faithful people. It has been the Chancellor of the University of Paris, 
Jean Cherson, who complained this situation with bitterness. But he did not only describe the situation and complain and lament, but also made concrete suggestions. Above all, however, he urgently wished and recommended that those masters of theology be studied more intensively again and again, in whom head and heart had worked together, who had been formed by enthusiasm for God and pastoral responsibility for the salvation of their fellow neighbors, human beings. In the eyes of Cherson, who aspired to a union of mysticism and theology, science and piety, the ideal teacher would be Bonaventura. Quotation, I think that in the first place among all doctors of theology, one should recommend Bonaventure. In my eyes, others may not blame me and do not blame you, me, in the circle of Dominican uh, theologians. He is a uniquely suitable teacher. One is in the best hand with him if one seeks enlightenment of the intellect and inflammation of the heart. An ancient conception of theology rooted in monastic spirituality, which one can find, for example, in Dionysius Pseudo-Arapagita or Evagrius Ponticos, but also in Bonaventura, and which also fascinated Edith Stein, sees God as a primordial theologian, since he speaks of himself. And whoever wants to understand him must be close to him, i.e. blessed and holy, precisely God's friend. So I would like to underline only two aspects in the text of Nicolaus quoted. The theologian must be a friend of God. Who is a friend of God? Probably you remember Thomas Aquinas' definition of the virtue of charity as friendship with God. Utrum caritas sit amicitia, the secunda secunde, 23. Friendship is mutual love, communication, revelation of the heart's secrets, union in willing, Remembering often a friend, becoming connatural with your friend, and sharing life. You could also think of a famous sentence in the Book of Wisdom, Sapientia 727. Passing into holy souls from age to age, God's wisdom produces friends of God and prophets. This kind of knowledge, therefore, is supernatural and based on personal relationship to God. And we can also find here a hint of the affinity between theology 
and prophecy. On the one hand, because of the friendship with God required for both, and on the other hand, in the message to be preached. Second point, Nicolaus of Clemence had named the goal of theological science as gaining eternal salvation and leading others to it. The question of the proper disposition refers, on the one hand, to the subject's progress in knowledge. On the other hand, the theological endeavor does not simply reach its goal in the advancement of the subject, but is seen in a larger context to communicate this knowledge, to lead others to salvation, and that is to teach them. Therefore, it's not without reason that the proper term for theology is sacra doctrina, stressed so clearly in the beginning of the Summa Theologiae. The medieval magistri in sacra pagina, or magistri sacre doctrine, saw themselves as doctores. That is, they saw teaching as an essential goal of the quest for cognition. Nota bene, the fact that such importance is attached to teaching in the realm of Christian faith, beginning with the commandment of the risen Lord, e untes docete in Matthew 28, or the self-introduction of St. Paul as Dr. Gentium in the first letter to Timotheus, is striking. It depends on the concept of faith itself, which is neither a personal mood nor an individual community. The importance of instruction, many aspects, can be seen clearly in the way of the catechumenate in the early church. Using doctrina for the transmission of faith, like, for example, Augustine's De Doctrina Christiana, emphasizes an intellectual moment in faith, the possibility of its theoretical transmission. Sacra Doctrina thus reveals the special character of theological science. It is not simply acquired, but received from the teacher of the teacher par excellence, Christ. And it is also handed down through teaching. Every human teacher here is first of all one who has been taught. This science depends on the word of God, Sacra Pagina, and can be transmitted through human words. Let's have a look at the interpretation of Matthew 23. Do not be called a rabbi, you have but one teacher. Do not be called master, you have but one master. 
Bonaventura chose this verse as the topic of his inaugural sermon, in which he elaborates on the ideal of a teacher following the one teacher, Christ. And Thomas Aquinas comments on the passage by saying, you find it at, at the handout. In the proper sense, teacher is called only he who has from himself the doctrine which he gives, but not he who passes on a doctrine which he himself has received. And understood in this way, there is only one magister, God himself. But in his ministry, ministerio, there are many teachers. The dignity of theological teaching consists precisely in the fact that someone does not merely pass on what he has from his own intellectual perspicacity, but what he himself has received. A magister, a rabbi, each one from magis, in matters of faith is always a minister, and this does not come from minus, but from monos. He is one committed to a monos, a gift and a task. Docere, Thomas Aquinas notes, is grammatically constructed with a double accusative object. Docere, aliquem, aliquem. One teaches another person something, and both aspects challenge the person teaching. To understand the truth you are speaking about and to be sensitive to the person to whom you are speaking. The double orientation of theological teaching thus is a specific application of the double commandment. Striving to know God corresponds to the love of God. Passing on this knowledge to others corresponds the love of one's neighbor. One will remember the famous short formula contemplari et contemplata aliis tradere. Just as love for God is the foundation and prerequisite of true love for the neighbor, contemplari is the prerequisite for passing on what you have understood by contemplation. It is well known. Term contemplation is not always used in the same sense and can even show a certain spectrum within the work of one author. It can be used to describe forms of meditation or consideration where the human intellect is still strongly involved, as well as those in which the graciousness of the divine attention are experienced more deeply. In the most narrow sense, contemplatio can designate a certain stage or type of mystical knowledge, also different in individual, in individual authors. For Thomas Aquinas, the act of contemplatio in general 
is indeed an act of the intellectus. But this act is not carried out if charity does not move to it. Caritas movens. One must be in love with the divine truth in order to fix one's gaze on it. Therefore, contemplari depends on love, on charity. And the theological contemplation uh, depends on charity defined as friendship. To look at your friend's deeds and remember his words brings you the fruit of joy and consolation, even if he is not bodily present. Thomas backs up his view with a word from Jesus. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Matthew 6, 21. And this seems not so far from the famous word by Richard of St. Victor, Ubi Amor, Ibi Oculus. For Bonaventure, contemplation is also supernatural cognition, broad term, including all forms and degrees except prophetic apparition, faith, and beatific vision. Thereby, in his view, knowledge and love go together perhaps even more intimately. Bonaventure sees contemplation as mystical experience, above all as a gift of grace an influence from God, a way God reveals his presence in a specific manner. A special insight is given, which transforms the human person. It grows from faith and continues the volatile dimension of faith. We will see this more clearly later. So it is caritas that brings about the likeness or assimilation to the object of knowledge as to the persons to whom one speaks. One cannot really understand an object of this kind without being or becoming similar to it. With the regard to the addressees, too, caritas brings about assimilation, empathy, with those seeking and longing for truth. Therefore, docere est actus misericordiae, Thomas says in Contra Impugnantes, and sheer inexhaustible patience. Let's hope. Augustine described these fruits uh, of charity in the teacher in De Catechisandis Rudibus. Whoever understands by heart God's desire to share his wisdom, love, and beatitude will love God and cannot help but share this communication to others. So the teacher not only teaches something, but shares with his disciples his own being touched by the truth. He is first a listener himself, has learned to love the truth and willing to let himself be transformed by it. That means a deep purification. One could even use the word expropriation 
conversion to become ministerio magister. It would be interesting to have a look to the ideal of a teacher, but we have not enough time for this explication. Now, the next point uh, is scientia and donum intellect. For the study of God's word, his revelation, the theology has a double face itself. Two aspects that not necessarily, not necessarily exclude each other, but are nonetheless the two dimensions can be expressed in two terms. Theological knowledge is on the one hand science, which has to be acquired, and on the other hand, illuminated insight, understanding faith that exceeds natural cognition. The intellectus fidei is the goal of theological endeavor. But theology requires both human effort, humana industria, and the grace of God, divina gratia. The deeper reason for the link between an external side, correct and proper methods, diligent hard work, learning languages, training one's memory, and the internal side, theological understanding, is to be found in the structure of Christian revelation itself. What we believe, for instance, the Trinity, redemption through the death of Christ, eternal life beginning on earth, does not spring up from an inner personal experience, at least not alone, but comes initially from outside. Ex auditu, Christ's disciples heard him preaching and saw him acting. And we know Christ through his apostles and witnesses. But to hear a preacher, even if he is perfect and holy, is not enough without ears of the heart. Similarly, to see for instance, miracles, if one doesn't understand them as signs, is not sufficient to cause faith. What is necessary is an inner light revealing the words and events of salvation history, attracting or slightly moving to trust and hope in Christ. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, try to explain this, as we heard yesterday by Père Denis in his commentary to the Gospel of St. John in the Summa, and also in his commentary to the letter to the Hebrews, 11th chapter, and Bonaventure in the Questionis Disputate de Mysterio Trinitatis. Theology is therefore, as Augustine has shown for the interpretation of Holy Scripture as a prototype of theological knowledge, first of all, learning what has to be learned from others. Even if Augustine did not consider it impossible 
that a person could be instructed by special grace of the Holy Spirit alone, he was convinced that this is not the normal case. Of course, willingness to make serious efforts is indispensable. By the way, Pope Benedict XVI had admonished seminarians to study diligently and not to follow only immediate practical considerations of usefulness. To study seriously is a sign of devotion in the medieval sense of the word, loving, obedient desire for God, the word incarnate, because of his desire to reveal himself. Therefore, theology involves not only kneeling, but to remain sitting on your seat many hours and sometimes sweating. The academic formation process of a master of theology at the University of Paris is quite impressive. Bonaventure studied the Artis Liberalis for eight years, theology for five, and then worked academically as Bacalaureus for six years. The goal of theological effort, however, is the inner understanding of the divine logic, the coherence of the articles of the creed, the depth of Christ's mystery, as it is said in the letter to the Ephesians, the connection of the mysteries of faith to discover their intelligibility and proper Analogy, analogies, the intellectus fidei, parallel to the act of faith, in which the message you hear will not make you a believer unless accompanied by God's grace. Theological insight is also not a product. It appears and shows itself as a gift of the Holy Spirit. This becomes even more clear in a question which was well known to the scholastic authors of the 13th century and which is also not unknown to us today. Whether theology is a subspecies of the gift of prophecy, part of the munus propheticum? The scholastic answer to this question was usually in one sense yes, in another sense no. It depends on the precise meaning of the term prophecy, what actually constitutes a prophet. Obviously, a simple identification of theology and prophecy is not possible. Prophetic knowledge and mission, being a charism of a non-habitual kind, unlike faith, and also theological science, which are permanent. Prophecy is no virtue, but primarily cognition, in some cases even cognitio tantum, without an impact on the affect or heart of the prophet. The way the knowledge is granted also differs, prophets having special revelations. And in this respect, the scholastics thought more soberly. They did not want to flatten the concept of prophecy, identifying the charisma with institutional forms to 
too smoothly. But since the time of the fathers, Cassiodorus' commentary on, to the Psalms had a great influence, the interpretation of a prophetic word or speech has also been counted as part of the prophetic charism. And therefore, theological work, which is primarily interpretation of scripture, could also be defined as a species of prophetic grace. What the prophet and the theologian have in common, however, is above all the task of proclamation. Both have to proclaim the living word of God in a specific historical situation. Both have to be witnesses for the revealed truth. And therefore, one is not astonished to hear Thomas Aquinas in one of his sermons say, academic teachers who sow doubts into the hearts of their disciples and do not resolve them are false prophets. So it was always considered essential for prophetic knowledge that the prophet understands, i.e., not only has dreams or visions, but also the visio intellectualis. For Thomas, visio intellectualis can mean two things. One receives an intelligible content, which one also eo ipso understands, or, second, one receives only the illumination of judgment of the judicio, as it is said in Secunda Secunde 173, um, Article 2. The second is a lesser form of prophetic enlightenment. The content of the knowledge can also come from another non-supernatural source or can already be known. And this refers the in interpretatio sermonum. There is a evident, an evident affinity between the interpretation of Holy Scripture in the same spirit at which, in which it was written. And this interpretation is the task of theology as sacra doctrina and the form of prophecy that is described as prophecy of enlightened judgment. Through the grace of interpretation, the original testimonies of revelation resound anew from age to age. For Thomas, the charisms are specific to the charisms that are specific to theologians are closely related to prophecy. On the one hand, it is scientia ut gratia gratis data, and also sapientia ut gratis data, which enables a person to understand the content of faith in such a way that it can explain, he can explain it to others and lead them, but also refute opponents. Second, the gift of interpretatio sermonum comes to the aid of the theologian. It is especially in the quadlibet. 1217, 
And finally, the Grazia Sermonis supports him. These three correspond exactly to the duties of the theological teacher, interpretation of scripture, powerful scientific synthesis in disputation, proclamation of the doctrine of faith in preaching. And like prophecy, these gifts of grace are primarily for the sanctification of others, not of the person himself. If and insofar as theology shares in the prophetic charism, as Thomas states, it also shares its deficiency. Ex parte, profitamus. Sometimes the mind of the prophet or the interpreter is touched by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he speaks from within himself, things that do not happen or are not sound. The theologian, especially when he regards himself as a prophet, is aware that he does not always have the right interpretation at hand and does not grasp all that the wisdom of God contains, as Thomas says in the Principium Regans. Now, Bonaventure. Perhaps one could say, while Thomas underlines in his charismatic view of theology the aspect of contemplata tradere, Bonaventura stresses the aspect of contemplari. The truth of God always addresses the whole person, his heart. According to Bonaventurian anthropology, the free will in which knowledge and love, cognitiate amor, understanding and being willingly attracted, affectus, work together. He explained the special character of theological science in the programmatic introduction to the commentary of the sentences. Whether theology is a habitus of the intellectus, pure speculativus, as mathematics, or the intellectus practicus, as moral sciences, or whether there is a third, more plausible possibility. Theology does not consist in theoretical knowledge alone, but it, is, but it isn't supernatural ethics either. It gives a sort of knowledge that has an impact to human heart. Theology is a habitus of the intellectus extensus ad affectum. Real knowledge, scientia, a quality perfecting the intellect. But the intellect is intimately connected with the heart, the affect. And knowledge has an impact to this effect. So the effect of understanding Pythagoras' theorem varies, varies greatly from the effect of understanding that a son of God has given his life that I should, lie, should live. 
Consequently, theology has not only the common tool, but three aims for Bonaventure. It is ministry within the church, defending the truth with arguments and to strengthen the faithful with arguments. But also, it is a fountain of joy and consolation, the theologian himself. Since in the spiritual realm, possessing is connected with knowing, Augustine had stated that in spiritual goods, loving, knowing and possessing are one and the same. The deeper understanding of divine things brings about deeper love and intimacy with God himself. The longing to understand Christ is an inner moment in faith itself. Quotation, if the ascent to faith is given out of love, then the believer also longs for reasons, rationes. And in this case, it is true. Human reason does not expel the merit of faith, but it increases consolation. Bonaventure can therefore call this scientia sapientia because he thinks of its special effect. The insight is already initially tasting, gateway to the experiential knowledge of God's sweetness, cognitio experimentalis divine suavitatis. In his conception of theology, inner, indeed mystical experience and intellectual research are not separate. The most beautiful example of this is the itinerarium mentis in Deum, where philosophical considerations and theological contemplation shall lead to mystical union with Christ. So, he knows a theological contemplation, the insight into what is believed as the fruit of the spiritual gift, Donomit Electus. Through this gift, man is able to discover analogies for the mysteries of faith and to see their inner connection. And he knows contemplation as the fruit of the Dom Sapientia. Here God is experienced as the fullness of love and as exceedingly lovable. Both types of contemplation have the same object, but touch him in different ways, or rather, through the two gifts of the Spirit, the believer is touched and seized by God in different ways. Gustate et vidite coniam suavis est dominus. Both are forms of wisdom, that kind of knowledge which is rooted in reverence and which knowledge and love are united. In theological contemplation, the light of knowledge dominates, but this knowledge is not without sweetness, but full of joy. In sapiential, mystical contemplation, sweetness predominates, but the experience of the sweetness of God is itself knowledge. This experience also has its repercussions for theological knowledge. I put a text on your handout. And this is even true 
if it is the experience of another person, as the itinerarium mantis in Deum shows, which is inspired by the experience of St. Francis. The line between the two forms of wisdom is permeable. God gives panem intellectus and potum sapientiae. Chewing bread is a little more arduous than drinking wine. So theology is a little more arduous than infused wisdom. Inside is the key to wisdom, intellectus clavis sapientiae. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Many thanks, uh, Professor Schlosser, for your uh, beautiful synthesis of the link between the uh, task of theology and the various graces which inform it and the role of experience in contemplation and theological knowledge. So, uh, as usual, once again, I would remind the participants, obviously, uh, there are new members that come here and there that haven't always been present to hear the various announcements. If you could keep your comments fairly short, this would uh, facilitate several tasks that we have to complete. I will read the comments. It's been a very long two days, intense days. Uh, and, and Dr. Marianne Schlosser may at times prefer that I also translate it for her into German. Not that she needs any help, as you can hear from her flawless English, but uh, she is a human being who has uh, a body attached to her spirit and it's been a long day. First question, uh, could you repeat the name at the beginning of your very magisterial lectures, having asked why all the theologians of the Middle Ages are, are uh, saints? It's a simple factual clarification. It's Hans Urs von Balthasar. No. And the article is Theologie und Heiligkeit, Theology and Holiness from 1960. We also have a request. Uh, this is nothing in. Uh, directly from Ariane, but it was sent to us toward the end of her talk. Someone wants uh, all of the videos available with Spanish subtitles. So the Thomistic Institute is not quite yet equipped to provide that. Although we are launching, launching, excuse me, it's also a long day for me, launching Spanish language programs. I've already begun to do so. Uh, but uh, so for the moment, the answer is no, but uh, hopefully in the future. Um, I also have a question for Marianne Schlosser related to a long-standing dispute between Dominicans and Franciscans on the relation between infused and acquired wisdom, infused and acquired contemplation, but I will leave that to the side for the moment. Uh, and as she knows, it would not be to start useless polemics, but... Uh, all right, Joey Valetza, go ahead and unmute Joey, maybe. Uh, uh, Marianne can also read this in the comment box, but you can just unmute. I'm sorry, Marianne, I cut you off. You were about to say. No, sir. I, I only wanted to say that the terminology um, 
of inflation and acquired contemplation is not in St. Bonaventure, it's later. Uh, but the, the reality um, described with this terminology may be there, uh, but yeah. I'm not sure in Bonaventure. No. Yeah, I also don't find it in, in Aquinas, and I don't. I haven't seen it in in Albert either. So, but um, there are there are some interesting passages in Thomas Aquinas about the relation between uh, sapientia gratis data and sapientia as a donum spiritus sancti. It's not totally separated, and that is very interesting. Yeah. So uh, the the text is on the handout, but I didn't yeah. read and comment it because at the time uh, ran short. Yeah, yeah. I have a doctoral student, a Dominican from Indonesia, Father Adrian Adireggio, uh, who just finished the last chapter of his dissertation, and he's writing precisely on this. It's a text I discovered in my doctoral studies, and I learned that hardly anyone ever talks about this part of Aquinas, the link that you just pointed out. Um, very intriguing. Uh, go ahead, Joey Beletza from Cambridge. Thank you. Um, ah. mm -hmm. Sorry, I just <laughs> ate something very, very quickly. Um, so I have a question regarding Bonaventure's mysticism regarding the relation of wisdom or sapienza in general and um, the sapienza, sapientia nulliformis um, in the hexameron. What is, I was very struck by this uh, phrase you used at, at the very end, um, uh, intellectus clavis sapientia, right? Um, so what is the point at which this uh, sapientia nulliformis is achieved by someone in, you know, um, after a point in which they have no longer any connection to, to some kind of intelligible form or something sensible. Um, yes. Uh, I think it depends from the concept of intellectus and also of the term nulliformis. If you are interested in, in this topic, uh, I wrote an article about this special question. What does nulliformis mean? Is it really uh, like an annihilation of the intellect and uh, being the intellect being expelled? Um, so and has nothing to do anymore. Uh, that's true. To do, he has not to do anything. But that does not mean that he, he does not admire something. So uh, it, it, it is a, a long question. And um, I thought I found the connection to a famous text in St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who said, um, the contemplation of the bridegroom, and this is within the uh, bridal mysticism, the bridegroom has a facies non formata. You can you you know uh, someone is looking to you, but he has not a face 
that is shaped. But you know him. And uh, this, this, is, this might be true also in, in, some, um, in some experience. We, we have a normal um, life in dreams, for instance. We know this is the, the person XY, but we have no clear shaped face. And, and therefore, uh, if, you, if you write me a mail, I can send you this article. Okay. Thank you very I'm much. Katie. Too long now. It's also a beloved topic of uh, the young Josef Ratzinger in his habilitation, yes. of which our speaker is the, the editor of the complete version thereof. Uh, Please pass so. text that you. Ah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, there so is a question of, of um, Liam Farah. Uh, the, the text we are referring to is the hexameron. And uh, in the, hex, in the hexameron has two uh, reductions. Reductions. And in one, uh, the sapientia nulliformis is very, very strongly stressed. And um, in the beginning of the hexameron, first, second, and third number or chapter, you find the structure of the hexameron a fourfold wisdom. Fourfold. The first is the light of natural intellect. It's very strong. It's uh, in Bonaventure because he comes from Anselm, he is convinced that the human intellect is strong, not weak. And then the wisdom uh, of God you can see in Holy Scripture and in creation. So creation and salvation history. And the, the fourth kind of wisdom is without a certain shape or figure. And uh, about this text we, we, we were discussing now in, in shortly. Uh, but he couldn't find the text anymore. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We have time for one or two more questions. It's been a very long day, um, but we can can do one or two more if if we need to. No, it's about it's a different. It's a, just a, a thank you from Pablo Guzman. Okay, all right. I'll give you my somewhat superficial impression I had as you were uh, presenting. Um, my impression was that um, I um, are you approximating Thomas and Bonaventure a little bit too much? This goes back to the question on the distinction between acquired and infused wisdom. 
As you know, in uh, the first question of the Summa, I believe it's in Article 6 of St. Thomas, there's a very clear distinction between infused and acquired theological wisdom, both of which presuppose faith, right? Uh, Bonaventure, as I have been taught by my teachers, like uh, my mentor and your good friend, uh, Richard Schenk, uh, has a closer, there's a closer relation between will and intellect and how they function. Um, so, um, because I think I, I will never dispute with you publicly about Bonaventure because I will always lose this argument. Um, but I, I wonder if your Aquinas is a little bit too Franciscan. I'm saying this with a smile, you realize. Um. I hope see, are both. you are you uh, I agree with you that the sections on the charisms of the prophecy are very important to understand his full vision of the magister, right? But um, we're dealing with the good magister, aren't we? The good magister, of yeah. course. Yeah. But um, the, uh, I think you cannot be the ideal teacher of theology without this intellect given by God. Also for St. Thomas, you can teach theology as you can teach any matter. Mm -hmm. But are you really an ideal teacher? And I would say, uh, according to these texts, um, of the Interpretatio Sermonum, et Gratia Sermonis, and so on. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but Thomas does place greater emphasis on the importance of the theology that is learned through human effort than Bonaventure. This is fair, do you think, for me to say no. this? Uh, pardon? And uh, is it fair, is it just or accurate to say that Thomas places more emphasis on the function of theology acquired through effort and learning of the sacred texts and the disciplines involved than would someone like Bonaventure. Is this fair, or am I am uh, I am I oversimplifying? I'm not. I'm not sure, um, because the effort. Is not for Bonaventure. The effort is not separated from the light you get, and also it is in Saint Thomas. Um, if you um, no, it's too difficult for me to to explain this in English. But so better off doing. Okay. <laughs> also die Anstrengung die man unternimmt, wenn man etwas erkennen will. Genauso wie, äh, wie bei der Interpretation eines Textes. Mhm. Es ist vorausgesetzt für beide, dass man wirklich zum Beispiel den Schriftsinn, den Wortsinn ernst nimmt. Das haben beide. Okay. Es geht nicht, dass man äh, sozusagen auf die, auf die innere Erleuchtung allein baut. Deswegen würde auch Bonaventura nicht einfach sagen, dass die mystische Erkenntnis die Theologie um, substituieren kann. Okay. So she, she just told us that 
for Bonaventure as for Aquinas, uh, it is essential for the theologian to use his human capacities, which are, of course, elevated by habitual grace. She didn't say the part about habitual grace. Um, to be attentive to the correct reading of the literal sense of the text, so now distinguishing, of course, from the allegorical, and that this is essential for the light, whatever light is given to be fruitful in the act of knowledge, in producing a sound act of insight, and that the mystical light or the higher lights can never substitute for the knowledge that can be attained through acquisition so that the two come together. And this is true for Bonaventure as for Aquinas. War das richtig? Ja, ich glaube schon. Ja, okay. Mehr oder weniger. Okay.